Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we are going to explore an unusual topic, a idea of a breakaway civilization. I think viewers will know this is a little bit strange for me, I'll admit. I'm a bit uncomfortable with the topic, but my guest is Dr. Jason Reza Giorgiani, my good friend, a brilliant philosopher and scholar. And when he wants to speak about a subject that I'm a little bit hesitant to get into, I'm willing to listen because I trust his integrity. I trust his scholarship. Jason is a philosopher and author of several books, including Prometheus and Atlas, World State of Emergency, Novel Folklore, Lovers of Sophia, and Iranian Leviathan. Welcome, Jason. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. And I agree with you that this is a very challenging subject to discuss. Uh, it's very complex, very controversial, but we'll endeavor to uh, make sure that the discussion isn't too convoluted. And, and of course, it, it goes against what most people think of as common sense. Or More than that. I mm -hmm. think that, see, uh, it has deeply disturbing sociopolitical implications. And um, I think for that reason, uh, people have been guided to not uh, think about the subject and to, to develop a, a subconscious resistance to it. So, you know, it will be a, a task to break through that and to, to explore this, this very complex material. Well, let's uh, begin with defining just exactly what we mean by a breakaway civilization. Well, uh, the ufologist Richard Dolan has coined this term. Um, he wrote a series of books called UFOs and the National Security State. And uh, from the title of that book series alone, you can see that what he's getting at is um, the possibility that the UFO phenomenon is somehow connected to the U.S. military-industrial complex, and not just in terms of the latter covering up the UFO phenomenon, but potentially fielding the UFO phenomenon. Uh, so Dolan uh, speculates that it's possible certain uh, scientific and technological breakthroughs have led to a culture so different from the uh, from the public culture uh, amongst uh, elites in, operating in the black world that that this culture could really be uh, properly characterized as a breakaway civilization. In other words, that um, scientific theories have been developed and technological breakthroughs have taken place. Uh, inside the uh, covert world of the military-industrial complex, which uh, have led to a worldview so radically different from that which is publicly accepted that the people operating uh, in terms of this worldview, who've internalized it and who are pursuing projects on the basis of it, uh, really live in an alternate civilization mm -hmm. and one that's, that's uh, forked off of our own. And uh, their technological advancements have also allowed them to develop a relatively independent economic and industrial base uh, so that although 
in its initial stages, um, this uh, breakaway civilization was parasitic on our economy and industry. Uh, it has to some extent been able to develop an, an autonomous uh, industrial economic uh, structure. That's uh, in, in a nutshell the concept of the breakaway civilization, and Dolan proposes it as an alternative theory for the UFO phenomenon, not necessarily claiming that uh, all UFOs are explainable in these terms, not necessarily uh, asserting that there are no alien civilizations con contacting the Earth, but that at least some set, subset of UFOs are um, uh, advanced uh, aerospace uh, vehicles that are being manufactured by what at this point is not just uh, a, a, a covert military-industrial complex, but a, an entire civilization that um, is operating from underground, as it were. Mm -hmm. Well, we now know uh, for a certainty that the uh, U.S. Navy has acknowledged sightings in the last decade of uh, vehicles uh, tracked on radar, spotted by pilots, uh, captured on video that far exceed uh, the uh, technological capabilities of, of the Navy, Army, and Air Force uh, as it presently is constituted. Yes, of course. Uh, I mean, the, the evidence for UFOs is overwhelming, and frankly, it has been for decades. Um, but uh, the question is, why the secrecy? Is it because an alien presence on this planet is being covered up? Or is it because uh, highly classified and compartmentalized projects inside the U.S. military-industrial complex are actually developing these technologies. And, and uh, you know, some of what's being seen by the Navy, uh, these tic-tac UFOs and so forth, might actually be manufactured by a deep black projects that, you know, the, the captains or admirals that are interacting with these these craft um, have no idea about because they're, they're not cleared classification-wise to have access to those projects. I, I know I happened to listen to an audio tape of Manley Palmer Hall, who is known as a, a metaphysical writer and a, a historian of secret societies discussing uh, UFOs. I think the, the tape probably goes back to the 1960s. And at that time, he declared that uh, he felt that they were part of so, some sort of a secret project uh, of the U.S. government. Well, there's been discussion for a long time about a secret space program. Mm -hmm. And, uh, in fact, in the 1970s, uh, there was this um, uh, British television program, television movie, uh, called Alternative 3, which um, purported to be a science news report. It's, it's similar to the style in which, uh, you know, Orson Welles' uh, War of the Worlds uh, broadcast was done, where it was mistaken by many people as a newscast yep. uh, and, and caused widespread panic. This uh, Alternative 3 was, um, was uh, produced in a way to emulate a, a news investigation. And it was an investigation of uh, disappearing scientists, these scientists from all different fields, with various technical expertise were going missing across the planet. And there was this news team trying to figure out, you know, where these people are disappearing to and why. And they come to the conclusion that um, 
after interviewing uh, Apollo astronauts whose lives are wrecked, who become alcoholics, who confess to them uh, after uh, one too many drinks that they went up to the moon and saw that they weren't the first ones there and uh, that was really demoralizing. And then they were gagged by the U.S. military into not discussing their experiences on the moon. After conducting these kinds of interviews and pursuing leads uh, at, at the universities of these scientists that have gone missing, they arrive at the conclusion that uh, a, a uh, techno-scientific elite um, projected that a catastrophic climate change would take place on the Earth and that as a, a consequence of that, uh, in order to prepare for that, they needed to start seeding human civilization on Mars. Um, so uh, they have recruited all of these missing scientists to work on bases at Mars that started to be set up there uh, by both the Americans and the Russians when they conducted a joint um, uh, landing on Mars as early as the 1960s, and they show the footage of that and so on and so forth. And um, some people have suggested that this Alternative 3 uh, April Fool's gag, it aired on April Fool's Day, uh, was actually a kind of sociological experiment where, you know, certain bits of classified information were leaked out through it and com and fictionalized to test the public reaction to this kind of scenario, to the idea that uh, elites in various governments, particularly uh, scientifically-minded people, uh, technocrats, would uh, develop a breakaway civilization ostensibly for the sake of, of maximizing the chances of, of human survival of some catastrophe in the future. Mm -hmm. Well, the idea of a breakaway civilization, independent of UFO technology, actually uh, goes back for centuries. It does. Um, it does go back for centuries. Uh, but before we jump centuries back, uh, I think it's worthy of note that uh, before Alternative 3, uh, in the early 20th century, in, uh, in 1933, I believe, H.G. Uh, Wells came out with The Shape of Things to Come, a novel that a few years later um, was developed into a big-budget Hollywood film, one of these epic early Hollywood films, Things to Come, 1936. And uh, in The Shape of Things to Come, the novel, and, and Things to Come, the film, uh, there is also a vision presented of a breakaway civilization. Uh, the idea is H.G. Um, Wells foresees uh, that there's going to be another world war, and um, he envisions a group of uh, scientifically-minded uh people with great technical expertise, technological innovators, in the armies on all sides, in the armies and air forces in particular, uh, on all sides of this war, defecting from their respective nations and absconding to some place, it turns out in the story it's Baghdad, where they organize uh, the foundations of a breakaway civilization and they literally go underground, they start building these underground cities where they uh, manufacture advanced... Um, uh, aeronautical craft and uh, they wait while human civilization collapses into ruins and uh, society reverts to savagery and barbarism and the earth is being ruled by a bunch of petty tyrants and you know feudal warlords and then they re-emerge from underground and these these uh these airmen conquer the entire planet and reorganize uh, society on a planetary scale into a, a utopia governed on the basis of scientific principles. Mm -hmm. And later, H.G. Wells would, would um, present this idea in a non-fictional context in his book, 
uh, the New World Order, which uh, which, which is uh, where that term was was coined, a term that later you know, was used by everyone from Adolf Hitler to George H.W. Bush. Uh, so the New World Order is the vision of... Um, uh, a scientifically governed utopian society. But the first time it was presented was in the context of this novel um, uh, that envisioned a breakaway civilization hiding away for a certain period of time and allowing society to degenerate so that it could then come back and conquer a ruined planet, rise up from out of the ruins, mm -hmm. and reorganize society globally. Mm -hmm. Most utopian novels refer not to a whole civilization, but just to, you know, a tiny community like a, a commune or Walden too. Or well, as you were saying, one example of that is, is Francis Bacon's New Atlantis, and this idea does go back hundreds of years. Uh, so one example of, of the type of utopian novel you're talking about is Francis Bacon's New Atlantis in the 1620s. Um, where you have a vision of uh, a breakaway civilization, a, a, a group of uh, scientific, uh, philosophical elites who, much like the guardians in Plato's Republic, who set up a civilization on a hidden island in the Pacific Ocean, and uh, they, they send out um, emissaries under false identities uh, to collect all of the uh, scientific, uh, scientific discoveries and, and technological breakthroughs of various countries and bring them back to this island where they are, uh, reverse engineered and synthesized and used as the basis for further innovation. Mm -hmm. uh, and the entire island is, is, uh, governed in, in accordance with, uh, uh, you know, a scientific mentality, uh, hell bent on progress, um, and, uh, you know, there are these uh, amazing visions, considering the book was written in the 1620s, of skyscraper cities, refrigeration, telephone lines, uh, submarines um, in this uh, uh, utopia that has concealed its existence from the rest of the world. Um, and that is uh, one of the earliest visions of the breakaway civilization, and it's worthy of note that the man who uh, set forth that vision was a, a member of the Invisible College which would later become the Royal Society of Britain, but which has roots in uh, the Invisibles or the Illuminati. So what we're talking about here is kind of a, a merger going back uh, to the uh, 17th century of hermetic ideas, esoteric thinking, which w was uh, to a large degree the basis of the Invisible College. Many scholars think of uh, the early Rosicrucians who were involved in this as, as a continuation of hermetic thinking that goes back probably to ancient Egypt. Uh, a merger of that with sort of a futuristic scientific vision. Exactly. And in, also, I suppose you have to add enlightenment philosophy, the idea that science and rationalism can rule the world. Yeah, Adam Weishaupt founded the uh, Bavarian Illuminati in 1776, the year of the American Revolution, and in some ways the apex of the Enlightenment. And, you know, uh, was presenting himself as a champion of the Enlightenment. And uh, this was, of course, during the, the Prussian Empire, the Second German Reich. And w what a lot of people, uh, I think, are not familiar with is that, I mean, e everyone's aware of the, the British colonization of the Americas, the French attempt to colonize the Americas in the Louisiana Territory and in Quebec, uh, the Spaniard attempt to colonize America, Mexico and the southwestern territories that we're in right now. Um, 
and and the Portuguese and Brazil, you know, the the uh, the Portuguese states of America. But few people think of the German attempt to colonize the Americas, although it was extensive and it began in that period when Adam Weishaupt was founding the Bavarian Order of the the Order of the Illuminati in Bavaria. Uh, during the Second uh, Reich, during the Prussian Empire, there was a group of um, Prussian-based German nationalists who wanted to create for the first time a unified Germany because such didn't exist. In that period, the German people were divided between Prussia and the Austro-Hungarian Empire and then a few other entities. And they had this vision for a unified German Reich uh, that would... Um, colonize the Americas that would have colonies overseas. And in the 1800s, they developed extensive colonial territories in um, Argentina, Paraguay, Bolivia, uh, southern Brazil, uh, all the way up into Mexico. And, and in fact, uh, in the United States, a large number of German immigrants entered the country at that time to the point where when we declared war on Germany in the, in the 30s, a fourth of the, the population of the United States was of German ancestry. Well, I grew up in Wisconsin, so I'm very well aware of, of the predominance of people of German ancestry in the upper Midwest. Right. So, um, now, it's not any shocker that you had, you know, these large numbers of, of German uh, migrants in the United States, but, but it is shocking, uh, to hear accounts from, from, uh, Charles Delshaw, who was a German American in, in Texas in, in the uh, late 1800s, that, uh, he was working with a group of, of Prussian backed aeronautical engineers in Sonora, California to design, uh, airships. Which were seen flying in um, uh, Chile and in Venezuela in the eighteen beginning, I think, in the eighteen sixties and uh, through the eighteen eighties, and then these airships uh, were witnessed by many people in in an eighteen ninety six eighteen ninety seven flap in the southern United States, particularly in Texas. It's well known in UFO lore. Uh, uh, Jacques Vallée, for example, t uh, writes about it and talks about it quite a bit, but uh, usually not in the context that these were potentially a, a, some sort of uh, earthbound technology that existed at the time. Right. Well, the accounts um, from the airship flap in 1897 are that, you know, th these guys would land on farms uh, and they were people. They were, you know, human pilots dressed fairly normally uh, and they would um, they would ask uh, to be resupplied uh, certain basic goods that they needed. And in exchange, they would sometimes offer to take the farmers on rides with them. One Texan farmer was offered a ride to South America and back at an unbelievable speed. Um, another farmer uh, who was astounded by this contraption and asked uh, who had produced it was told that uh, it was uh, being uh, funded by New York investors and that the company manufacturing these airships would soon be publicly declared on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, this is interesting because uh, J.P. Morgan, uh, a New York investor, investment banker, uh, has been tied to these uh, Prussian uh, nationalists, to these, this group of German nationalists building airships. Uh, Delschau called them NIMSA, um, a, an acronym that uh, translates from German uh, as um, uh, airship pursuit and exploration uh, project office. 
Airship Pursuit and Exploration Project Office. And JP Morgan was the New York-based investor in this group. Um, and JP Morgan also later uh engaged in a business venture with John Rockefeller and Alan Dulles that was responsible for funding uh, the rise of fascism in Europe, both both in Nazi Germany and in fascist Italy. Um, so uh, J.P. Morgan had a long-standing involvement with German ultranationalists, and he seems to have been the, the funder of this airship venture, which is interesting considering the fact that J.P. Morgan was also the principal financier of Nikola Tesla's World Wireless Project. And when you look at the concept drawings that Tesla did for World Wireless, there are these airships crossing the skies powered by his uh, free energy system. Now, I mentioned that Morgan went into business with Rockefeller, and the two of them, together with future CIA director Alan Dulles, were funding the rise of, of Nazism in Germany. Uh, Rockefeller was also one of the early oil magnates. So Rockefeller was intent on developing this petroleum-based, uh, non-renewable energy platform mm -hmm. that could really be capitalized on. And a free energy system of the kind that Tesla was developing, World Wireless, would have been a, a serious threat to that. So it appears that Morgan uh, bought the patents for this, that his investment in Tesla was for the sake of buying the patents to this system and burying it so that it could be exclusively controlled by these NIMSA folks. Um, you know, and someone who wants to really look into the subject should uh, read Walter Bosley's books, uh, formerly worked with the Air Force Office of Special Investigations and has done extensive research on Delshaw and NIMSA and the connections to, to, uh, Morgan and, and New York investors and so now, forth. You mentioned Delshaw several times as, as a key person. Uh, who, do you have any more information about his background? Who is he? Well, he was a German immigrant who um, evidently uh, was uh, hired by or, uh, you know, enlisted by the Sonora Aero Club to do technical drawings of the arrows. This is what they called them, the arrows that they were building. And th these drawings are, they're really peculiar and, and interesting. Um, it's clear these things are not uh, Zeppelins. They are not early airships. They're not balloons of any kind. Um, they are... Uh, you know, flying with some kind of electrogravitic technology that we don't understand, uh, which is interesting uh, insofar as it connects to Tesla's idea that there is an uh, ether. I mean, Tesla's world wireless system has been dismissed by many mainstream engineers because it's based on an alternative uh, physics concept uh, of a dynamic ether. And... Uh, uh, you know, it may be that whoever was designing these airships was working based on the same alternative mm -hmm. physics model. And, and the notion of ether is uh, pretty much discredited in, in modern theoretical physics today. But uh, for benefit of, of viewers, I did do an interview with biophysicist Dr. Beverly Rubick, uh, suggesting that we really need to revive the concept of ether or, or to say that it's already been revived uh, in other forms. I'm going to link to that video now for people who might want to pursue that lead. Well, in the uh, 1800s, one of the terms for this etheric energy was vril, mm -hmm. uh, which comes from a, a popular, uh, or at least subculturally popular, cult classic 
uh, sci-fi novel by Edward Bulwer-Lytton called Vril, The Power of the Coming Race. Bulwer-Lytton was uh, an occultist. Uh, he also wrote the uh, classic novel, The Last Days of Pompeii. Mm -hmm. And uh, Bulwer-Lytton described this subterranean civilization, uh, essentially an ancient breakaway civilization that um, was organized around this energy, this etheric energy. And uh, th this idea of Vril and of a society organized around Vril was the inspiration um, to Baron uh, Rudolf von Sobotendorf when he founded the Thule Society in Germany in 1917. And the Thule Society in Germany was the cradle for the German National Socialist Workers' Party. It was set up as a political action front against the rise of communism in Germany. These aristocrats, like Baron Spottendorf, feared, for obvious reasons, the rise of communism in Germany. Um, after all, you know, Germany was the ideological cradle of communism. And so they feared the rise of communism, and they set up the German National Social Wor Socialist Workers' Party as a kind of barricade against that on a sociopolitical level. But what they were really after was real, was this etheric energy. And so that makes a lot more sense out of um, a, uh, a project uh, called Kronos, Project Kronos, that uh, was um, that was uh, set up in a think tank on the outskirts of Prague under the direction of Hans Kammler in uh, the early 1940s. And it was an attempt to uh, access an unlimited source of energy to tap essentially the ether and use it for practical purposes. I might mention again, parenthetically, that we've discussed this project Kronos in a prior interview on time travel. There's a connection there. Right. I mean, the name of the project suggests that, you know, uh, even if this was an attempt to tap etheric energy, that the shearing of space-time that takes place when the zero-point uh, uh, energy vortex is opened also affects time, all right, because space and time are, are a unified matrix. And so you have this uh, bell-shaped device with two counter-rotating drums inside of it um, filled with uh, mercury-thorium isotope and uh, running on al alternating current and periodically shocked by direct current. And the idea is that the electro... Uh, magnetic stresses that the uh, the serum was subjected to would result in a kind of alchemical transformation of the serum uh, on a, on a quantum level uh, into uh, a vortex uh, into a a supermassive sort of, sort of like a controlled black hole, uh, and that the energy generated from this could be tapped so that it was like a power plant. Uh, and the energy coming out of it was greater than the energy being put into it. So it, it is, you know, what people have uh, described in, in the UFO field as zero-point energy. I mean, Nick Cook wrote a whole book on the quest for zero-point energy, and he does discuss the bell prominently. But, uh, you know, where this is relevant is that it seems to be an extension of the kind of projects that were being pursued much earlier, as early as the, the late 19th century, by NIMSA, in uh, America, in the Americas, both North and South. Uh, so, you know, when you look at the business connections, uh, not just between Morgan and Rockefeller and the Reich, but also between, you know, Ford 
and uh, German industry. Uh, Ford was was building tanks for for Hitler even after the war began. When you look at you know IBM uh, and uh, its um, its development of the punch card computer technology that allowed Germans to manage the concentration camps, the fact that the German subsidiary of IBM Dahomag was even more advanced than the American IBM parent corporation, as it turned out when they went into salvage the wreckage of that company after the defeat of the Germans. Uh, you start to see how. Um, the fascist project in Europe, especially on the military industrial technological level, was fielded from out of the Americas after the Americas were colonized by Prussian nationalists, either formally or informally. Because obviously, if you got a, a bunch of Prussian nationalists working on aeronautical research in California, they're working on, in the sovereign territory of the United States. But they're a private corporate entity that is developing technology in North America. Yeah. And that it has connections to corporatists in New York, which in turn wind up funding the rise of fascism in Europe. I've often been puzzled how uh, Germany transformed itself from a total economic basket case in the early 1920s, uh, where people had to fill a wheelbarrow full of cash just to buy a loaf of bread, uh, it, to an economic military powerhouse 10 years later. Yeah, well, they were funded from here. Mm -hmm. And they were funded uh, from here by corporatists sympathetic to Prussian nationalism. Um, and, you know, th this also included the Carlyles and the Astors, uh, who were major backers of the eugenics programs in the United States. Uh, Adolf Hitler um, idolized the American eugenics program and thought that Germany was falling behind America in the quest to create a master race. Uh, the, the, the idea of using eugenics to engineer a Superman of the future is an American idea. Mm -hmm. the, I mean, and this wasn't because of our constitutional structure. This wasn't done on a federal level. Various states had different laws regarding eugenics. And these state laws uh, in, in uh, the U.S. were the model used by the Nazis for their eugenics program. So you had people like the, the Carlyles, the Astors, Rockefeller himself uh, as backers of eugenics uh, and uh, as people who inspired the eugenics programs in Europe. Rockefeller University in, in New York was one of the early um, eugenics research institutions. Mm -hmm. So my point is that you had a transplantation. Uh, you, you, there was a transatlantic nexus that's military, industrial, and scientific, developing as early as the late 19th century, and ultimately yielding the German military-industrial complex of the 1940s. And then that was harvested in 1945 by the United States. Uh, so, you know, Operation Paperclip imported thousands of uh, German scientists from various fields, not just rocket science, into the United States. Um, people as prominent as Werner von Braun, who uh, was made the head of NASA and took us to the moon, ultimately. You know, the majority of, of the scientists uh, at the upper echelon of the Apollo program were former Nazis. Uh, and high-ranking Nazis, like Kurt Davis, for example. It wasn't just von Braun. He staffed 
his uh, planning group for the Apollo program with his former Nazi colleagues. And the man himself, von Braun, wasn't your, your average uh, card-carrying member of the party. He was an SS major responsible for building rockets inside mountains using slave labor to drop on civilian populations. This is the man we brought to the United States and l allowed to run NASA and take us to the moon. Uh, so when you see that degree of import uh, and harvesting of the, the Nazi military-industrial complex, you can start to see what... Um, President Eisenhower was was worried about and what he was trying to warn the American people about in his farewell address when he talked about the, the unwarranted seizure of power by the military-industrial complex. Uh, and it, the unfortunate thing is that it's not just the military-industrial complex, it's also our intelligence apparatus. The National Security Act of 1947, which going back to Richard Dolan and his UFOs in the national security state, Dolan places a lot of emphasis on the National Security Act of 1947 and how it transformed the American Republic mm. and compromised our constitutional system. Uh, that um, act resulted in the creation of the CIA, okay? And the, the Central Intelligence Agency was literally constituted from out of a merger between the OSS, the, the wartime American intelligence, and the Galen Organization, a Nazi spy network in Eastern Europe run by General Reinhard Galen. Uh, as the Soviets were advancing toward Berlin, uh, these territories that for, for some time during the war were held by Nazi Germany in Eastern Europe uh, were, were, uh, were home to a network of Nazi spies uh, directed by General Galen. And this entire network was imported lock, stock, and barrel into the United States uh, and co-constituted the CIA at its foundation. So that ultimately, you know, you have CIA directors like George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, whose father, Prescott Bush, was one of uh, Hitler's chief financiers in America. Now, uh, in addition to that, uh, I have to trust that this information is accurate. I, you know, we haven't reviewed all of your sources. Uh, as I recall, Prescott Bush was, was a senator. Yes, but he was also a businessman who was responsible for funneling uh, funding from organizations like the German-American Bund to the Nazis, yeah. uh, to basically, uh, you know, um, concentrating and funneling uh, support from America for the rise of, of fascism in Europe. Well, I know there was a lot of support in the United States for the uh, Nazi regime prior to the uh, onset of America entering the war. Uh, as I say, I grew up in Wisconsin. There, there was strong German presence in Milwaukee and uh, very much in support of Germany uh, at at that time. Uh, and then we have Henry Ford, who was who'd written books, anti-Semitic uh, anti books himself. And you pointed out to me earlier that he actually had a, a swastika symbol in one of the early emblems of the Ford Motor Company. In that connection, let me also remark before I go on that, uh, you know, J.P. Morgan uh, developed a logo for Chase Bank, which at least to my eyes is a, swa is a stylized swastika, um, especially when you consider the, the connections that he had both to the Prussian nationalists in the late 19th century and then uh, how he, together with uh, Rockefeller and future CIA director Alan Dulles, funded the rise of Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and, you know, Chase... Is, uh, is a German word, Schasse, meaning the hunt. And, you know, swastikas were used as symbols of good fortune in hunts. So, at any rate, um, 
And what also I'm, NIMSA, as you pointed out to me earlier, has that idea of uh, hunting and pursuing. Yeah, the first uh, letter in NIMSA, which is, uh, I mean, the second letter in NIMSA, um, uh, which is uh, pronounced uh, in, in German as a, a Y sound, but is written with a J, Jagflutzeug. Uh, uh, Jagflutzeug it means hunting flying, literally. I mean, it idiomatically translates as ex pursuit exploration, but it means hunting flying. And so th they're on a hunt in South America, a hunt for resources, to mine South America of its resources, and to hunt territory, to, to mm -hmm. uh, grab hunting ground, okay? And this is the hunting ground that post-1945 they conveniently escaped to. So, you know, people who, who you know, uh, study the Nazi relocation to places like Bariloche in Argentina in the late 1940s tend not to consider the fact that this entire area was colonized by the Germans in the late 19th century. They bought uh, 15,000 acres of, of land in Bariloche around 1900. Um, the peak of their, their colonization of, of Latin America was in in the late 19th century, in the 1880s, 1890s. So, so my, but my point is this, with respect to the idea of a breakaway civilization, that when Operation Paperclip imported thousands of hardcore Nazis into the United States, and intelligent ones in every scientific field, and when the CIA, our principal intelligence agency, was developed through a synergy with a Nazi German intelligence network in Eastern Europe. We, a, a foreign entity embedded itself into the deep structure of the United States, something which today is referred to as the deep state. And so when you, when you uh, suggest, as someone like Richard Nolan has, uh, Richard Dolan has, that, um, black projects may be the source of UFOs, that, you know, the, the military industrial complex of the United States may be responsible for the UFO phenomenon. You have to really ask yourself whether that's the United States or whether it's American in any coherent sense. Uh, I think, uh, what happened here was a complex psychological warfare operation. And I want to add another, uh, uh, piece of the puzzle here that has to do uh, with um, the first sightings of flying saucers in 1947, mm -hmm. which which I think were, was frankly the catalyst for the National Security Act of 1947. I, and I, a lot of UFO researchers agree with that, that the wave of UFOs in 1947 is what ultimately allowed the National Security Act to be passed and, you know, the constitutional structure of the United States to be fundamentally compromised. So in 1947, there were these news reports about Franco launching saucer, quote, saucer-shaped rockets, unquote, over the Atlantic Ocean toward the United States. Franco in Spain. The fascist leader of Spain. So, even after the defeat of Nazi Germany and fascist Italy, there was a surviving fascist government in Europe, Franco's government, you know, which is also a, a Spanish-speaking government like, I mean, it's, it's you know, the, the mother country of Argentina, which was the other main relocation site for Nazis. Uh, so Otto Scorzani was the chief of uh, special operations and psychological warfare in Nazi Germany. He's the guy that Hitler sent to extract Mussolini from the prison that the Allies were holding him in after they defeated the, the Italian fascists. And Otto Scorzani was on the scene when... Franco was launching these saucers toward America. Um, or, or he was rather, Franco was on the scene observing and Scorzani was directing the operation. And people who've researched, like Joseph Farrell, 
uh, who, who's most extensively researched um, the Bell uh, Project Kronos, believe that uh, him and also Nick Cook believe that Scorzani witnessed the fl uh, the flight of a Bell powered flying saucer in the facility outside Prague in late 1944, and that Skorzeny was possessed, being a, a mastermind of psychological warfare, was possessed with the idea of using this uh, weapon in a psychological war against the United States. And so it's a distinct possibility that the hysteria created at high levels of the United States government, particularly within the military, over flying saucers, uh, which then led to an undemocratic uh, conceding of power to, to the military-industrial complex, was a way to ensnare the United States after having already inserted uh, all of these high-ranking Nazis into the foundational level of this military-industrial complex. It's a kind of a, you know, um, double-headed beast, a kind of hydra that is uh, attacking America from two directions, both from the inside through the Nazis that have been imported and from the outside through an apparent alien threat, uh, resulting in the creation of this highly classified, you know, deeply underground uh, military-industrial intelligence complex, which eventually yields a breakaway civilization, but one that's motivated by a fascist ethos and one that can't in any legitimate way be described as American, and certainly isn't under the con democratic control of the American government. So you're, you're suggesting that possibly the flying saucers first reported around Mount Rainier in 1947 in the United States that led to this whole big UFO flap might, might have been related to these uh, vehicles that Franco was launching. Well, and I'll tell you why. Because uh, the, the saucer airframe was arrived at in German aeronautical technology as a result of a, a very... Um, a practical um, engineering problem, uh, which is called the suctioning of the boundary layer. A pocket of air develops around the wings of an aircraft flying at high speed. Uh, and this air resistance impedes maneuverability. So they would build slots into aircraft to try to suction this air off of the wings and help increase uh, maneuverability in dogfights and so forth. And eventually, uh, Victor Schauberger, uh, came up with a an innovative uh, airframe design uh, with s s uh, suction slots all around it, a an airframe with no wings that would be uh, disc-shaped and that would suck in the boundary layer of air in all directions uh, through these vents and provide ultimate maneuverability. And uh, people who have researched this have suggested that the flying saucer, is is which initially was rocket-powered, they had a a um, s uh, set of circularly placed rockets underneath these airframes in the early prototypes. Mm -hmm. But the suggestion is that th the, uh, the end result of this research trajectory was to fuse the bell as a power source with this saucer airframe and create, you know, the flying saucer. Something related to zero-point energy rather than rockets. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And Corso, in the day after Roswell, yeah. describes the technology, Colonel Philip Corso, uh, who, was who was the head of the Foreign Technology Division of the Pentagon responsible for reverse engineering technology seized from foreign powers, uh, 
he describes the, t the wreckage recovered from Roswell, the kind of technology that was retrieved and reverse engineered and farmed out to various U.S. industries. And people familiar with the German uh, advanced research, like Joseph Farrell, who've looked at um, Corso's descriptions of this technology, have pointed out that none of this stuff seems particularly alien. You have things like Kevlar. I mean, this is what Corso describes. Mm -hmm. Kevlar, uh, night vision, lasers, um, metal that's perforated so that you can blow through the metal and feel your breath on the other, on your hand on the other side of the metal. And all of these kinds of technologies were, uh, science fictional in America and everywhere else in the world in the 1940s, but they were the edge of German research in, in 1944, 45. Uh, night vision was being fielded experimentally by the German military in 1944. So was Kevlar. Uh, and a lot of these, uh, Velcro also was apparently discovered in the wreckage in Roswell. These are not the kind of technologies you expect from some alien civilization thousands of years ahead of us, but they are technologies consistent with the state of the art in Nazi Germany. And so it is possible that the reason that Roswell was, that, you know, there are multiple layers to the cover story of Roswell. Mm. Of course, the weather balloon story, the Project Mogul story. But it's possible that the alien crash story is also a cover story. You know, it, it's a little strange that they would even have announced that they captured a flying saucer in the first place before then covering it up, mm -hmm. right? And one possible explanation for this is that in 19... 45 at the uh, well in 1947 a few years after the war's end in 45 it would be devastating to admit to the american people that uh some incredibly competent group of of scientists and and engineers had escaped the collapse of nazi germany and were operating from out of argentina or who knows where else uh with a with a capability of launching these advanced aircraft into the sovereign airspace of the United States. And it, it's worthy of note that Roswell at that time, Roswell Army Air Base, was the only facility on the planet housing nuclear weapons. So this was an incredibly sensitive American military facility that may have been being surveilled by this, uh, you know, extraterritorial uh, survival of the Reich, mm -hmm. this incipient breakaway civilization. I guess another element of this whole story is is the work of Dr. Stephen Greer and his disclosure project. Yeah, I mean, there are certain um, there are certain testimonies that uh, Greer amassed in the disclosure project from people working in industry and various branches of the military that support the idea that there's a breakaway civilization. Um, you know, you've had statements from people like Ben Rich. The former, uh, the, I mean, the CEO of uh, Lockheed, uh, shortly before his death, to the effect that we already have the technology to go to the stars uh, to bring ET back home, but it'll never be released. Uh, and and you have a variety of people uh, who participated in um, the the dis disclosure project offer testimony that they they worked on reverse engineering uh, some kind of very advanced technology that they presumed was alien, but who knows what the source actually was? Whether these were things that were being retrieved um, uh, from uh, a breakaway civilization, uh, or whether they were they were simply being tested by a breakaway civilization. 
And the technicians working on the projects were led to believe that they were dealing with alien artifacts. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think another piece of the puzzle, which is really worth getting into, are all of the uh, very, very popular novels of Ian Fleming. I'm talking about the James Bond series, where you, you really have uh, uh, quite a lot of detail about, you know, these stateless, uh, powerful uh, secret organizations engaged in uh, international intrigue. Ian Fleming was a British intelligence agent who was involved in the evacuation of Martin Bormann, uh, the chief financial mind of Nazi Germany, uh, from out of Germany. Um, after uh, his death was faked three times, there are three separate accounts of how this man died, um, but he was writing uh, checks in his, in his own name through Chase Manhattan Bank in Argentina in the 1970s and uh, appears to have been the financial mastermind of this extraterritorial post-war um, fascist international. And Ian Fleming in his Bond novels describes uh, a, a shadowy cabal called Spectre that is a third power in the world besides the United States and the Soviet Union. And in fact this you know, uh, the, the metaphor is given that like the United States and the Soviet Union are like fighting fish and the specter is like a cat waiting for them to tire themselves out for one to eat the other and for the one that's one to be exhausted so that the cat can then devour the remaining fighting fish. And it's a metaphor for the relationship between the extraterritorial fascist international specter is and its relationship to the United States and the, the Soviet Union. And so what you have to wonder is, you know, the extent to which the, now at this point the third generation of, of these fascists imported into the United States, the extent to which they will remain loyal in any way to America now that they've defeated the Soviet Union. Uh, there was a convenience alliance between them and the American government that imported them uh, so long as these, uh, these Nazis got to uh, take apart their greatest enemy, the, the rival who they considered more serious ideologically than the Western capitalists, namely the Russian communists. Mm -hmm. And the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. Um, and lo and behold, a, a decade later, uh, you know, our military industrial intelligence complex has uh, entangled us in this uh, war in the Islamic world. Uh, this this uh, catastrophic ideological conflict, which poses a, a grave threat uh, to the survival of the United States if it's allowed to continue for a very long time. You're talking about a clash of civilizations. I'm talking about a clash of civilizations that to some extent may have been engineered because... Uh, you know, the Nazis didn't only go to South America in 1945. They also embedded themselves across the Islamic world. They were building rockets for uh, Gamal Nasser in Egypt. And they were, you know, in cahoots with the uh, the Mufti of uh, Palestine and uh, were operating in Iran, uh, you know, uh, associated with uh, far-right Iranian nationalists in the late 1940s. Uh, there was an, an organization of former SS officers, uh, the acronym in German is ODESA. It translates to Organization of Former SS Officers, uh, which has also been referred to as Die Spinne or the Spider. And this is, I think, the organization that Ian Fleming fictionally depicted as Spectre in the Bond novels. And he knew of it because he was involved with the evacuation of Martin Bormann to 
um, South America. Now, there's another thing that needs to be mentioned in that connection. I mean, why would a British intelligence agent be involved in evacuating such a high-level Nazi? There were, there were really uh, wealthy and influential Britons aligned with Nazi Germany. In 1941, Rudolf Hess, who was one of the closest confidants of Adolf Hitler, and who also, not incidentally, was involved in the German Antarctic Expedition of 1938, Rudolf Hess uh, made a, a uh, took made a kind of uh, a, he took a, an un unauthorized flight into Britain. Okay, unauthorized. I mean, from the British perspective, violated British airspace and came and landed in Britain and was taken into custody uh, in an attempt to secure a peace between Britain and Germany. This was one of the many attempts by the Germans to secure an alliance with the British Empire uh, and prevent a war, uh, at least a war with the British. And uh, Hess was taken into custody. And uh, it, it came out after he was interrogated and ultimately imprisoned. Um, that he was there attempting to contact 30 members of the British Parliament, high-ranking members of the British Parliament, who wanted not just a detente, but an alliance with Hitler. And so this makes some sense out of why a, a member of British intelligence would be sent to evacuate uh, Martin Bormann to Latin America because there were very high-level sympathizers in Britain as well as in the United States. And, and it's well known now that the, the former king of England who had abdicated his throne uh, was also a Nazi sympathizer. Indeed, indeed. But my point is that you know, when you go back to H.G. Wells and the vision for the new world, the first politician to take H.G. Wells' phrase, the new world order, and to use it in a political speech was Adolf Hitler. And my suggestion is that when you go back to H.G. Wells and the British vision for this scientifically managed global socialist society, socialist society, uh, and uh, you look at, um, uh, you know, the, the alternative three, which may have been a social, a social experiment on the yep. part of British intelligence, this mm -hmm. kind of, you know, Orson Welles style television broadcast. Uh, it's possible that to this day, there is a, a component of the breakaway civilization in Britain, uh, as there is in the military-industrial complex of the United States, that is actually pursuing um, a fascist political vision, uh, one, one that goes back, you know, to the 19, at if not, you know, if not uh, to the late uh, 19th century, at least to the early 20th century. Well, this is a very complex story, Jason, but I think uh, you've certainly articulated many of the pieces of it quite well, and I'm sure there are many more we haven't even gotten to yet. Yeah, um, but, uh, you know, I think we've given enough references for, for people to you know, follow the leads uh, for themselves and, and see what they, they think of the research that's been done on this subject. Um, you know, just in conclusion, I might mention that there have been some... Uh, allusions to this in popular culture. Uh, and I would refer viewers particularly to David Lynch's Twin Peaks television series and uh, to the, the more recent uh, Netflix series Stranger Things. I think that the producers of Stranger Things and also David Lynch uh, are aware of this narrative and have made certain um, occult references to it. In their, in their, uh, in their work and the narratives that they've woven in these series. Like, for example, um, the, uh, black and white lightning bolt pattern 
uh, and the red curtains in the Black Lodge are evocative of the the colors color schema and the symbolism of Nazi Germany the S the, the lightning bolt symbols of the SS. You're, you're talking about the Black Lodge and the Twin Peaks. The Black series. Lodge and the Twin Peaks series. Uh, the I think the right arm uh, the that's that's cut off of Bob the demonic villain in the Twin Peaks series is a reference to the fascist salute. Uh, the bell appears in the third season of Twin Peaks um, on another world. Uh, on another world, uh, next to this giant who's a, a, a mysterious figure that appears throughout the original two seasons of Twin Peaks. In the third season, uh, you get, you have this very bizarre room on another world where the giant is next to a bell. Something looks just like the, the device developed in Project Kronos. And David Bowie's voice is emerging from out of this bell at one point. Uh, and Bowie, in it for a brief period in the 1970s, identified as a fascist. Finally, uh, Laura Palmer, um, in, in the third season of Twin Peaks is found in, by Agent Cooper, the protagonist of the series, in a town called Odessa. Uh, and she doesn't remember who she is. She seems to have a false identity, just like the false identities manufactured for the paperclip scientists. I mean, paperclip was a term um, uh, coined on the basis of, you know, these dossiers, the fake dossiers the CIA created to hide the Nazi pasts of these ro relocated German scientists. And so Laura Palmer seems not to know who she is. She has a f false history and a false identity, and she's in this town, Odessa. I think this, this is a reference to Odessa the Spider, uh, the, the, uh, organization of, uh, former SS officers. At any rate, um, the Spider also features in Stranger Things, in the Stranger Things television series. The mind flayer, spectral creature that's trying to take over the small American town of Hawkins, Indiana, is depicted as a giant spider with uh, uh, lightning bolts crossing the red sky in the background of this creature as it, you know, looms over the town. And uh, at one point, one of the, um, the, the kids who are, uh, you know, the protagonists of this series um, described the attempt of this mind flayer to possess the uh, denizens of Hawkins as akin to uh, invasion of Nazis from a parallel universe. And, you know, there's also a reference in the, in the series uh, to needing to water down a narrative when it's, it's too disturbing for the public to be able to swallow. There's a conspiracy theorist character um, in the series who's obsessed with Russian infiltration of America. And at one point he gives a lecture to, uh, to, um, some of the, the adolescents who are the main characters in the series about how, you know, when the public can't handle a, a, a a shocking discovery about, you know, the, the unethical activities of the government, the, the operations of the black world, you need to water it down into a narrative that's consumable. And I think that the Duffer brothers who, who produced this series have done exactly that, mm -hmm. that they have a sense of what's really going on in the military industrial complex. The military industrial complex is really the boogeyman of this series. They have a lab on the outskirts of Hawkins, and they're trying to penetrate into the dimension that this spider is coming from out of. But by doing so, they're actually opening the channel for it to uh, take over from underground. So there are these references in Twin Peaks and Stranger Things and in other um, uh, popular cultural works, the recent television adaptation of Philip K. Dick's Man in the High Castle, to the idea that 
there is a hidden fascist power that's attempting to colonize our world, that has formed a breakaway civilization, which is waiting to rise up over the ruins of our known civilizations. Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's an irony here um, that relates to you personally, Jason. You've been publicly accused of being a genocidal maniac Nazi. Uh, in uh, I, an article that was published on the New York Times website uh, that pretty much destroyed your academic career or even any possibility of having an academic career. Now, we've just spent the last hour or so talking about the dangers of uh, fascist and Nazi uh, influence and, and some sort of an underground breakaway civilization. Uh I suspect that uh, perhaps the, the very people that you're critiquing right now uh, have, have made an effort to destroy you as a uh, credible spokesperson. I think that that's a very interesting suggestion. Uh, and, you know, I've written an entire essay on this subject. In my anthology, Lovers of Sophia, there's a, a I mean, it could almost be a book. It's a very long uh, essay uh, called Black Sunrise about a fascist breakaway civilization. And the question your viewers should consider is, if I were sympathetic to the goals of such an organization, would I expose in such depth and detail what their objectives are and, and what the hist their history of their covert operations are? Uh, so, you know, viewers should, should take a look at that essay, Black Sunrise and Lovers of Sophia, because it involves ideas and a narrative that I will be revisiting in my future writing. Mm -hmm. Well... Jason Reza Giorgiani, once again, I have to say, uh, I'm amazed by the breadth of your scholarship uh, and your erudition. Uh, I don't know what to make of this entirely. I have to say, as your close friend, uh, I kind of regard it as speculative. I haven't been able to verify fact by fact. That would take many, many hours of research. But uh, as I indicated when I introduced you, I trust your credibility. And uh, I urge the viewers to do that. I also want to urge viewers to take a look at the comment section under this video where we're going to link to a GoFundMe page. Uh, as I mentioned, your academic career or even prospects for having an academic career have been totally destroyed by uh, people who, who made a, a vicious uh, effort to defame you and apparently uh, succeeded in, in doing that. Uh, you want to continue to write and uh, to publish and to uh, be a public uh, spokesperson for uh, very important ideas that you've been exploring. I regard you as one of the most brilliant scholars I've ever known. Uh, so uh, what's important for you right now is to have a public base of support. So I want to encourage our viewers uh, to contribute generously to the GoFundMe page so that you can continue the important work that you're doing. And uh, once again, I want to thank you for being with me, Jason, and, and I'm very heartened that uh, while you're here in Albuquerque, we still have a few more interviews to do. Thank you, Jeffrey, for taking the risk of uh, putting this information out there so that viewers can follow the leads themselves and uh, assess the evidence for this, uh, you know, in their own time and, and, uh, and weigh the implications of it in their own consciences. And thank you for being with us.
Thank you.